We're going to finish the Psalms tonight. You're right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 145 is the last one written by David that we know for sure. He could have written 46 through 50. We just don't know. But this is the last one that's attributed to David. Let's read it. It's called an acrostic psalm, which means that every verse begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but there's only 21 verses in chapter 145, which presents a problem, which I'll come back and address after we read it. So let's dive in. A psalm of David, I will extol you, O my God, O King. And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. And they shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all of his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints will bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generation. And the Lord upholds all who fall and rises up all those who bow down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, gracious in all of his works. And the Lord is near to all who will call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him but all the wicked will be destroyed. And my mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 145. All right, there are several uh, of the Psalms that we call acrostic Psalms, which means that each verse begins with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The first one in verse one here is the... um, um, the letter Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. And uh, verse two, it would just continue. The last one, the 22nd letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Ta, T-A-U. Now the one that is missing is um, the letter Nun, N-U-N. And uh, it's at this point that the critics take this to task and say you have a problem because it can't be an acrostic psalm because there's only 21 and it has to, you have to have 22 Verses. Well, um, I don't think that's the case. I believe um, that it was left out for a very definite reason. From Psalm 145 to 150, we find that every one of them is a hallelujah psalm. It sort of has uh, an increasing crescendo, and you're going to see this as we go through 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, and 50. You'll notice that they get a little bit shorter. 
they intensify a little bit, and they're really building up um, uh, to this great climax uh, in Psalm 150. Why would one verse be left out of Psalm 145? I think it speaks of the fact that our praise is imperfect. I like what F.W. Grant has written related to the omission of this one letter. I cannot but conclude, and I'm quoting him now, that the gap is meant to remind us of the fact that the fullness of praise is not complete without other voices, which are not found here. And these missing voices are those of the church and the heavenly saints in general. You don't get all the hallelujahs until you get to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven singing, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And again, they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thunders saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The Lord God all-powerful finally is going to take his place. And all this rubbish that we see taking place today as we're in a tailspin uh, going down quicker <laughs> every day. Uh, these things have to be, because the Bible says they have to be. And we're going to come out the other end, and the Lord's going to establish his kingdom. We're going to get into that in another one. But when I've been teaching through the Psalms, I, I kind of gravitate to one or two verses and highlight them on Wednesday evening. Tonight I'd like to go back to the attributes found in verses 7, 8, and 9 of the, the God that we serve. And to um, one of the reasons it's important to study the Scriptures is we discover the very nature of uh, the Lord. What he wants us to know about himself is given to us in, in, in the scriptures. And we find in verse 7 that um, they, we have the memory of his great goodness and his righteousness. So he's good and he's righteous. Verse 8 said he's gracious and full of compassion. He's a compassionate God. He's slow to anger. He's great in mercy, and the Lord is good to all. He's not willing that any should perish, but again, man has a free will. He has tender mercies, not just mercies, but tender mercies are over his works. So these describe his attributes, and I'm just going to pick one of them. I mean, we could pick any one of them and do a, a word study, but I'm, uh, if you haven't done a word study, it's like taking one word and then just going through the Bible and find out what it has to say about it with the computer age and blue letter Bibles and all the resources that we have, we can pull up a word pretty quick and do a word study and basically that's what I did today. So I picked out the word compassion and I'm just gonna take you through, I can't take you through all of them, but where they're highlighted and how they're manifested in the New Testament when Jesus walked his three years of ministry he demonstrated the nature of the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And um, so let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 9. And I'm just going to go through Matthew, Mark, and one verse in Luke, talking about um, the Lord's nature. And um, if you look at verse, um, what we're going to discover here, sometimes we speak about the feeding of the 5,000. What a lot of people don't realize is there's also the feeding of the 4,000. 
and there's a feeding of the 5,000, but then a couple chapters later, uh, we'll discover there's a, the, a whole different group of people that are 4,000. In chapter 9, um, let's pick it up in verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Um, Barb uh, Skramkowski called me today. She got back from Israel last night. And um, um, she was telling me that her and her 93-year-old mother and um, her sister Janet uh, took a day trip up to the Galilee. And, and um, that's when you stand up on our bell, you can hold your finger like this, overlooking the northern tip from uh, the Mount of Beatitudes to Capernaum to the land of the Gadarenes. And, and what the guide will point out, he'll say 60% of Jesus' ministry happened right there. You can hold it between your fingers. And it's an incredible thing to think about. And this is one of these places where we're here, if we were standing on our bell right now, which is a mountain overlooking it's right, the city of Magdal is right below where Mary Magdalene is from. And it's just heavy to think that 60% of the Lord's ministry happened right in this area, right here in the north, northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he is here. But when the multitudes, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with, notice, compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like having no shepherd. And they said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out um, into the harvest. Um, let's go to chapter 14, just a couple pages later. And we're still in the same general area. And we find the feeding of the uh, 5,000 here in verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard it, he departed from their boat, that would be on the Sea of Galilee, uh, to a, a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And uh, there would have been Bethsaida, Chorazin, um, Capernaum, uh, and many more cities that would have been around during that period of time. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and again said he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, uh, this is a desert, a deserted place, and the hour's already getting late. Send the multitudes away that they can get back to their homes and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, we only have five loaves and two fishes. Now remember that, five loaves, two fishes for this story. He said, bring them to me. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven. Now when I prayed tonight, I says, it's great that we can um, close our eyes and bow our heads. And, but I'm thinking in the back of my mind, that's not how the Lord prayed. Many times, he, it, we were told here, uh, he looked up to pray. And he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. 
And it had to be, you know, a miracle is taking place on the spot. As they go and pass, it's just immediately replenished. So much so that uh, they ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets. You need to remember that of the feeding of the 5,000. There was 12 baskets left over, full of fragments that remained. And those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So everybody's familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. But how, how many of you are aware that there's another one, two chapters later, that are dealing with a completely different story, the feeding of the 4,000? So go to chapter 15, looking at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have, I have what? Compassion on the multitudes because they have continued with me three days and they haven't had anything to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, well, where can we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude. Now, either these guys really have a poor memory <laughs> or they missed it the first time around. And we're guilty of the same thing. The Lord provides for us and then we get all shook up and when, uh, when, when we're in need again, not trusting him. And Jesus said, well, how many loaves do you have? Notice, they say seven and a few little fish. The numbers are different. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. The disciples gave to the multitudes. So they ate and were filled, and they took up, notice, seven, not twelve, large baskets full of fragments that were left. Now those who were there were about four thousand men besides women and children. And then he sent away the multitudes, got in a boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Well, I know exactly where Magdala is, and um, he would have, if he took a boat, that means he's probably over towards um, the land of the area of the Gadarene, could be uh, Chorazin, it could have been Bethsaida, any one of these communities, or one, or just out, out there somewhere, but it would have been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, because Magdal is uh, really close to a place that we call um, Nafganazar. Uh, it's a kibbutz. Uh, it's famous for the, the first century boat that they discovered there that's a real tourist attraction. But for many years, and especially in our, our early years of going to Israel, um, Nafganazar was a place that we always stayed at. So where he goes back to is Magdala, and that is where Mary Magdalene was from. Turn to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 30. Four, pick it up, and we have here uh, the healing of a blind man. Now, as they departed from Jericho, now Jericho is um, the lowest city on the planet. It's on the northern tip of the Dead Sea. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. And it says, A great multitude followed him there. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And then the multitudes warned them and said, Shut up, quiet. But they cried all the more, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And um, they knew they had heard the stories. 
People that couldn't walk were walking. People who couldn't hear were hearing. People who couldn't see were seeing. They're not going to shut these two guys up. Not with the buzz that's going around town. Jesus is passing by, and that's not going to hold them. And the Lord heard them. And Jesus stood, and he called them, and he says, What do you want me to do for you? I mean, it should have been pretty obvious. And they said, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had what? He had compassion. He looked on them. And he touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Now I'll tell you what's interesting about this. It's the word immediately. Because there was another blind man who also desired to be healed. So what does the Lord do? He um, spits in some mud, rubs it in his hands, and sticks it in the guy's eye, and tells him, now go wash. And he says, how's it going? And he says, well, I see men like trees walking. He says, well, wait a little while. And before long, everything came into focus. So the question arises, if the Lord can just touch him and immediately have healing, and yet another time, he uh, spits in the, in, in the ground and, and makes mud and sticks it in the guy's eye and tells him to go wash it out. What's up with all of that? And the only thing I can come come up with and my two cents worth and that's all it is is my speculation is the danger of trying to put the Lord in a box and sometimes the Lord will heal over a period of time if you ask for healing and sometimes he'll just do it instantaneously and um, I, I think there's a danger of trying to say well this is how it's done it's not done in any other way no the Lord can do it any way he wants to and by the way there was a lot of other people that um, were not healed, that was there. Um, but any time that the Lord decided to touch somebody for the glory of his Father, then he would. So um, we have that one there. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter. Mark 1, and make our way to verse 40. This This is interesting to me because... Uh, leprosy is a disease that uh, in those times is incurable. And yet, in the law, provision was made, when you read the law, for the day of the healing of a leper, how, how they would determine they'd have to go to a priest who would put them in solitary for seven days. And um, if after seven days the skin was cleared, they would be declared clean, but up until then, if you had leprosy, you actually had to go around declaring yourself a leper and to stand back because it's highly contagious. You don't touch a leper. But Jesus does here. Verse 40. Then a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I think we sang tonight, he is able. Don't we sing that tonight? He is able, he is able. I know my Lord is able. And um, the Lord is saying, yeah, I'm willing. And Jesus moved with what? Again, compassion. His heart went out to this man, put out his hand, and what? He touched a leper, and everybody's watching, and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. And as soon as he spoke, the word is immediately. Now, Mark, this is really Peter's, Account. It's written by Mark, but it's really Simon Peter's account. 
And the reoccurring word here, Mark is, uh, uh, Peter's gospel is fast moving. The reoccurring word for this gospel is immediately. It occurs over and over again. If you look at chapter 2, verse 2, it says, immediately many gathered together. If you go to chapter 1, verse 18, it says, immediately. If you go to chapter 1, verse 10, and immediately. So we have immediately, over and over again, the Lord touches this guy, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And then he says this, he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself notice to the priest, and offer for your, your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He had to go and get a clean bill of health even though he's clean. And this again uh, is in the law, you can do your homework how do you shut a guy up when you've been cured of leprosy? Uh, uh, But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and it spread uh, the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly speak and enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every quarter. So my take on this is that the Lord said, you know, keep it it quiet, uh, because he wanted the public access to the people, but everybody knew this guy was a leper. And when you're in a, a community, and um, uh, we, you know somebody who definitely has it, and all of a sudden, immediately, they're, they're taken care of. How do you, how do you not herald um, um, what the Lord has done? Having said that, you know, how can a person be born again, have their life totally transformed, and not tell your best friend about it? And, uh, you know, in my early days, a lot of zeal, no knowledge, but I, I, knew, I knew he touched me, and I knew I was healed, and I knew, I, I knew I'd never be the same. And I was disappointed in reaction of, of all my buddies. There was a few of them that would listen, but not many. And, um, but you, you, you can't not talk about Jesus when you meet Jesus. Somebody just want to say amen to that? You can't help but talk about Jesus if you really met Jesus. And uh, that's what happened here. This guy got touched, literally. He got touched by Jesus. And uh, he was cleaned. And the symbolism is all over this, this analogy here, this allegory. That's what happens. He touches you. He cleans you. He saves you. And um, that's, let me just give you one more example of a, a simple word study. Go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, for one more. Luke 7, verse, um, let's see here. Luke 7, 13. All right. The raising of a boy from the dead. Pick it up in verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nan, N-A-I-N. And many of his disciples were with him in a large crowd. And when, when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And the Lord said to her, and he had what? Compassion on her and said to her, 
Don't, do not weep. Now, how do you tell a mother <laughs> at her son's funeral not to weep? She says, don't weep. And he came and he touched and opened the coffin. Oh, man, what a sight that must have been. And those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. When Jesus was on the cross, uh, he said, I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to rise my life up again. Well, he not only has, when he died, the work was over, and he simply dismissed his spirit. And he says, you can go now. And he just, he's the only one who can do it. He's also the only one that can speak outside uh, to this young man whose spirit had left him. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. You don't think that freaked out the crowd? And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified who? They glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. When it's truly done right, and it's, and it's um, done in the correct way, people will give glory to where the glory is due, and that's to the Lord, not to the individual. Even here, they glorified God for what the Lord had done through the, our Lord Jesus. All right, let's make it personal. Turn to First Peter. Chapter 3, verse 8, and I'll read one verse. If our Lord was compassionate, what do you want to be known for? Everybody has their personalities and their attributes, and God has given everybody here a gift that he wants you to use. But what do you want to be known for? As we do a word study, we, we took a look at verses 8 and 9 of verse Psalm 145, and he's slow to anger, he's gracious, he's kind, and he's compassionate. And these are attributes of the God that we serve and the Lord that we love. And so if that's being the case, and if we're being sanctified, we're justified when we're saved, but the sanctification process is ongoing, we're being changed into his image. Well, if his image is one of being compassionate, then shouldn't you and I as believers show compassion when, um, when, it's, when, and when we see it. Um, man, I was, uh, we were in Arizona this last winter, and down there almost on every corner there's somebody with a sign, no food, I'll do anything for work, stop, help me out. And um, you can't stop for every one of them. But my heart just gets yanked out, thinking that uh, you, know, you don't know if they're on the up and up or, or whatever. But... Um, uh, we like to help those that we can, but we can't help everybody. So it says in First Peter 3, it says, Finally, <clears throat> all of you being, have one mind, having compassion one for another, and love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. When somebody gives you something, say thank you. When you've done something wrong, say you're sorry. And when you see a person who has a need, my Bible says if you have it, the power to meet that need and you don't meet that need, then the question arises, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? Because if Christ dwells in you, that's exactly what he would be doing. And uh, it's not just talking about it, but actually showing the compassion because uh, that is his nature. 
As we talk about the attributes of God, let's go back to Psalm 145. And as we look at this, and we just look, pull out two verses of David, David's observation what drew him to the Lord is he's kind, he's righteous, he's gracious, he's compassionate, slow to anger, great in mercy, and he's, he's tender, hearted. And um, Peter says, uh, the, <laughs> Peter uh, picked up on the word precious, and when you read First and Second Peter, that's the reoccurring word that he uses for the Lord. All right, Psalm 146. <clears throat> Let's read it, and I'll come back, and we'll highlight a verse. Uh, subtitled, Don't Put Your Trust in Men. It begins and ends with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And while I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs and he returns to the earth. And that very day, his plans perish. But happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keep truths forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, and the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Well, we just read about that. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous, and the Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widows, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. This is, of course, future tense. When the kingdom comes, he will reign forever. And then it ends with praise the Lord. Now, praise the Lord. I remember the first time I was a young Christian, and I was noticing people were doing that. They were saying, well, praise the Lord. And I'm thinking, huh, Christianese here. I'm going to have to learn a new language. And uh, trials and, and uh, blessings and uh, this terminology of praise the Lord. And I remember the first time trying it on for size. I was looking for an opportunity to say it. And I was just waiting for the right moment and the right time. And I thought, this is a good place to find my first one right here. Praise the Lord. Mm, nobody responded except me, you know. I, and I thought it was, this is my first, first shot at this here. Come on, I need, I, need, I need some encouragement. or I don't know what I was thinking. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was the first time I was trying on something that was foreign to me as a non-believer. And I, rem- I remember it well, and making that first step of saying, praise the Lord. Well, praise the Lord, of course, it means hallelujah. Hallelujah, did you know, is the same word in every language? I go to India, and they have 100 different dialects. But if I say hallelujah, they all say hallelujah. And uh, down and, and they speak Creole and Haiti. And Haiti, hallelujah, hallelujah. You can go anywhere in the world, and you can sing hallelujah, and they understand that one word. It is the same in all languages. Um, this this um, psalm right here, a story by Dr. A.G. Uh, Gabriel, 
He tells the story of a visit he had from an Orthodox Jew. He stated that he read the New Testament and found the title of Jesus of Nazareth so often mentioned as the Son of Man. He then declared that there is a warning in the Old Testament not to trust the Son of Man. As we ask him for the passage, he quoted from this Psalm 146, and if you look at verse 3, do not put your trust in princes nor a son of man in whom there is no help. Well, this Orthodox Jew quotes that, and he says, I'm not supposed to do that because Jesus calls himself the son of man. Well, we explained to him that if our Lord had been only the son of man and nothing else, if he had not been Emmanuel, the virgin born son of God, if he were not true, as Isaiah stated, that he is a child born and a son given, there would be no salvation in him. But he became God's son and appeared in the form of a man for our redemption. His argument showed the blindness that the Jews have. Now, this is what we're told in the New Testament. Blindness has happened in part, just for a short time. Those that say that God is done with Israel and believe in replacement theology, which is because the Jews rejected Jesus, Jesus rejected the Jews. That's simply not true. But for a period of time, blindness has happened in part, it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, you're a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. It implies that there's a set time when the church age is going to come to an end, and then the clock's going to begin to tick again because God owes Israel seven years. He has unconditional promises made to David that David would sit on an, with the Lord in an everlasting kingdom. And um, so his argument showed the blindness of the Jew. The statement is given in the psalm, that man is sinful. This is just talking about ordinary men. My point on Sunday, as we talked about in the cave, the difference between David and Elijah, is David wouldn't put any trust in man. He just took it straight to the Lord. And uh, he, he got his, his release that he was looking for. Uh, there is one in whom salvation and all men uh, need to have that found, the God, of, the God of Jacob. So there is that blindness right now that Israel has. Um, The Lord has got uh, Israel in a vice, and every day that goes by uh, gets a little bit closer. If you look at the top story in your news bites tonight, we have ISIS now in the Gaza Strip, and we have ISIS on the borders, and um, the northern city, I can't remember the name, is falling to ISIS as I speak. We keep talking about the victories and so on and so forth. But on the news before I came over tonight, um, they just said, (laughs) be realistic. They can quote all the positive numbers they want to. We're losing this war as far as ISIS is concerned. But it's all part of the Lord's plan to um, bring about what we read in the Old Testament, the time of Jacob's trouble. The table is set for that. And everything's been ratched up exponentially. I mean, from one year ago till now, everything has happened quicker and quicker and quicker, and um, this is all part of God's purpose and his plan. Ezekiel 38 is marching at the gate. I mean, it's right there. 
Um, and it's happening, and we, and, and we see it happening. So getting back to verse 3, this is one verse that I'll pull out. The reference to the Son of Man is not a reference to the Lord. It's an ordinary man. Don't put your trust in me. I was listening to this uh, song by um, uh, our friends um, Marvin and Gentry. They got a great song that just talks about, you know, don't put your trust in me because if you do, you're going to be severely disappointed because I'm going to let you down. And that can be said for any one of us. It's not that I don't want to let you down because I don't. You know, I I know what's the right thing to do, but like Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't always do them. And the things I don't want to do, well, sometimes I do those things. Oh, wretched man that I am. So it's not a matter of will. It's a matter of that I still have this nature of the sinful body that I have to deal with on a daily basis and try to keep it in check and and, um, under the Lord's authority and Gang, this is the, the one way, the only way that I know to do it is keep your nose in the book. Somebody want to give me an amen to that? It's what keeps us on track. And um, it is truly a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It shows us how to do this. And again, it reveals the Lord's nature. And it can correct an Orthodox Jew who misunderstands Psalm 146, verse 3. He doesn't get it. He will get it when 144,000 of them get saved from the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, Moses and Elijah show up on the scene, start doing supernatural things, preaching the gospel at the same time. Well, they'll get it then. And, uh, but they'll be in a place where they're um, ready to receive the Lord because what happened in Egypt where God manifested his, his, his hand, that's going to happen again in the Ezekiel 38 war. The Lord gets directly involved. And 54 times a reoccurring phrase in the book of Ezekiel is this. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. That's 54 times in the book of Ezekiel. But the biggest one is the war itself. Because that's one of the places after the Lord directly destroys 5-6, Ezekiel 39 verse 1 says five-sixths of this invading force, that's sure they're going to wipe out Israel. Five-sixths of them are wiped out on the hills of Israel. And then it says, right in verse last part of verse 38, then they shall know that I am the Lord, because he's alive and well, and they see his hand. Psalm 147. Psalm 147, again now, the crescendo is building, and... Um, Let's uh, read it through and we'll come back and take it. Psalm 147, praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and praise is beautiful. I can say amen after participating with the worship tonight. It is beautiful and it is pleasant. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them by name. Wow. Great is our God and mighty in power. He understands the infinite. And the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God. Who covers the heavens with clouds. Who prepares rain for the earth. Who makes grass to grow on the mountains. Makes me have to cut it two to three times in one week. Oh, that's not quite there. So 
forget that part. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise our God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your great. He has blessed your children with you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He uh, sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool, and he scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out the hail like morsels, and who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes the wind to blow and the water to flow. He declared his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. In Psalm 147, let's go back to the first three verses. Verses 1 and 2, as you can see, have not been completed, but are our future fulfillment. And um, it talks about the Lord gathering out the outcast and building up Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to take this because in my Bible, it has a reference to verse Psalm 102. And I want to go back to Psalm 102 because it's timely. So let's just use that one verse and go back. Again, when David Dolan was here from Israel, he taught on Psalm 102. And I found it an extremely interesting study. Because verse 16 is quoted in Psalm 147. But when we go back to Psalm 102, um, in verse 18, it says, For the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory, and he shall regard the prayer of the destitute, and they shall not despise their prayer. And this will be written for the generation to come, that a people are yet to be, to, to be created who will praise the Lord. So this is a prophecy. And what David Dolan did, and he explained the Hebrew, and I have checked this out for myself, and um, what it actually says in verse 18 is this will be written for the generation to come. That's not a correct translation. In the Hebrew it says this will be written for the last generation. There will be a people created that will praise the Lord. Now, this is quoted in Psalm 147, but I think it's extremely interesting because it ties into Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus said, when you see the fig tree uh, blossom, know that a summer is near. Uh, always uh, emblematic of the nation of Israel when Israel blossoms again. Well, Israel is blossoming again. Tourism is at an all-time high. Um, third largest producer of produce in the world, in this little country in the Middle East. And uh, it's beautiful. I mean, there's places there. Um, Sakni, out in the middle of the wilderness, is, a, is an oasis. We have baptisms there. It's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, the forests are, have been replanted. And uh, the Lord said, Matthew 24, when that, when you, if you're alive in that generation, you're going to see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. And um, that's just one verse in the New Testament, but here you have one from the Old. 
And here, um, when the, it's saying when the Lord will build up Zion, he will appear in his glory. So the stage again is set. This is a prophecy. But I like what Dalen, David Dolan says, that this will be written for the last generation. And talking to him about it, he says he thinks the translators didn't have the chutzpah to actually put down what it really meant because of the implications. Actually saying that there will be a last generation uh, for Israel and them not understanding it, maybe that's why they didn't put it down. So be a Berean, do your own homework with that one. Um, Let's go back to uh, our Psalm 147. And um, I can't help but have this pull this one verse out because it's such an incredible verse. Verse 4, he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, we, we uh, went back to where we were staying and our neighbor had, had this telescope out and he was determined to show us Jupiter. Um, the lens, I'm not kidding, was that big on his telescope. And he had to get uh, GPS coordinates from two different stars before he could even align his telescope. And um, I was cold and tired and wanted to go in the house, but he was insistent that I was going to see Jupiter. Well, sure enough, um, there it was, and all of a sudden I could see the rings in Jupiter, and I could see these four. I said, I said, there's four stars. And he said, he said, yeah, those are the moons. And then he started naming them off one at a time. And while he was doing that, I said, wow, that's, that's incredible that you know that much. I says, you know that, that the Lord not only numbers them and knows the number, but he calls them all by name. And it really set him back. Uh, he's a real sharp guy. He's a 747 captain um, pilot. And, um, uh, and I said, yeah, you ever, you ever hear of the Zodiac? And he said, of course. And I said, well, did you know before it was the Zodiac that it was called the Maseroth in, in the scriptures? And probably what the Zodiac is, a corruption of what the Maseroth was, which I believe is, uh, according to Bullinger, which I just happened to find in a book the other day, The Witness in the Stars, which is a presentation using what we would call the Zodiac to present the gospel of Jesus Christ before it was corrupted and turned into what the enemy does with a lot of stuff. He, he copies it and he makes it false. Well, he didn't know quite what to say about that. <laughs> so I have found my copy and I'm going to give him Bollinger's book. And, and, um, but I was impressed. He knew the names of every one of those stars and never heard of them before. But having said that, when you, when you watch God of Wonders, how's my time going? I'm okay. Um, much of we, I was, we were at the Y yesterday, I was playing racquetball with Todd and Judy was working out. And when we were all done, we met up in the lobby. And I got a buddy down there that, I, that I've known for years. He's, he just works down there. And, and because he loves to ski, I love to ski. That's all we talk about. And so we're just standing around in a circle, and he said out of the top of his head, he says, well, are you traveling anywhere because I travel a lot? And I says, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, the end of this month, um, we're going to the Grand Canyon, and we're going on a creation study with 40 other people, another Calvary chapel in California. And he said, really? Uh, A creation conference at the Grand Canyon? He's trying to download this into him because he's not a believer 
And I said, yeah, we're going to go look at the, the uh, foundation stone. You see, the Grand Canyon was not formed over millions and millions of years. It was, it was uh, laid down really quickly over a very short period of time, and we're going there to scientifically prove it. And he says, oh, really? And with a very sort of cynical, sarcastic tone in his voice, he says, well, I, don't, I, I, just, I just don't believe that way. And I says, well, I tell you what, you just hang here for just a second. Now, I'm locked and loaded with God of Wonders in my car. I got them on both, both, both seats. And you just stay here just a second. I'll be right back. And so I ran to the car, and I ran back again. And, um, and I said, we can have a, a great discussion and debate about this, but how can you debate unless you know what you're debating against? I said, these guys are all scientists. And I said, next time we meet, let's talk. And he, he's a friend, and he'll probably do it just because out of friendship. Well, um, I had to go home, and I was thinking about it, and it's been a while since I watched God of Wonders. So I stuck it in and watched the whole thing. When's the last time you guys watched God of Wonders? Do it. You want to get blessed? Do it. And just the, the glory of the Lord is there. Um, some of my friends are in there. Frank Sherwin, a good friend uh, from the Creation Institute. Dave Hunt is in it. Roger Oakland is in it. And now we have a commercial right now. I, I want you to um, start planning for the Creation Conference that we're going to have here with Jay Siegert and Rick Oliver. I want you to set that Saturday aside. I want you to think about inviting somebody. We're going to be running interviews on both WEMI and Q90. They're going to interview both of them on both stations. But Calvary Chapel, Appleton, let's, let's take advantage of the lateness of the hour and let's invite somebody and let's plan ourselves on being here. It's summer and it's a Saturday and I know you could be doing a lot of things. But it is late. Somebody want to say amen to that? And we got an opportunity to bring two heavy hitters in like that. Um, take advantage of it, guys. And set, mark your calendar. And take it a step farther. Watch God of Wonders again, just to inspire you. And they have a whole section. And they quote much of Psalm 147 here. with the um, He covers the heavens with a cloud, prepares rain for the earth. Have you entered into the treasures of the snow? And the wonders of, of the Lord is there. But it has a whole section just on the stars. And it quotes Psalm 147, verse 4. He tells the number of the stars, and he calls them by name. Are you kidding me? I, I was watching it last night. I've been quoting 17, 18 billion light years across for, for, for a long time. Well, God of Wonders said they're up to 28 billion light years across now with billions of these galaxies, and each one of them billions of stars inside the billions of galaxies. And he calls them by name. And he's got to humble himself to look into it. How does he measure it? Oh, about this much span. Wow. Psalm 148. I could really get sidetracked on that. Watch God of Wonders. Do yourself a favor and get blessed. Psalm 148. Again, Feel the crescendo begin to build. Praise the Lord. It begins with praise the Lord. It ends with praise the Lord. Uh, we have the great hallelujah chorus uh, starting to take place here. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him as angels. Praise him his host. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you sons of light. Praise him you heavens of heavens and your waters above the heavens. 
Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded that they were created. He spoke it, and they were. He also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, storms and stormy winds fulfill his word, mountains and the hills, fruitful trees and all the cedars, beasts and all the cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all the judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted and his glory is above the earth and heaven. He has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of his saints. All the children of Israel, a people near to him, praise the Lord. Verses 1 and 14, um, we've done away with any trials and of discouragement. Uh, David's pouring out his soul, asking for the Lord to deliver him from his enemies. We don't find any of that in these last couple of psalms. It is exaltation, and it is um, a glory to magnify, in this case, all of creation. And again, this is, um, um, all of creation is um, waiting, so to speak. Let's do one sidetrack here. What I'll pull out is it talks about his creation praising him. But turn to Romans chapter 8, and we'll just look at a couple verses quickly. Romans 8 in the New Testament. Draw your attention to verse 18. We don't see all creation rejoicing right now because it's still under a curse. Our curse was placed symbolically that crown of thorns was symbolic. There was no thorns until man sinned. And it's a picture when you see the crown of thorns on Jesus' head on the cross when he died. It's symbolic of the curse being placed on Jesus. And there were no thorns, and until then, there are thorns still today. But if you look at verse 18, it talks about our creation groaning of chapter 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have people in our fellowship that are suffering terribly right now. Uh, a gal, Crystal, just had surgery. She's in a lot of pain right now. Crystal, if you're watching, we're praying, praying for you. And um, back surgery, for those of you who have had back surgeries. And in this world, there's just a lot of suffering that people, people go through. Then it says, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So Psalm 140 Eight says, all the creation is worshiping. Well, not yet. It will when the Lord comes back 
And uh, we enter the millennium where the lion will lay down with the lamb, and there won't be any more thorns. Uh, Verse 22 tells us, through 25, and verse 23, and not only they, but we also, the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. We watched the news tonight. I watched, looked at Rick Warren holding hands with Bono, endorsing same-sex marriage in Ireland. And it's, it's in the news bites. And what, you know what I did when I saw it? Uh, I groaned. You know, Rick Warren with another photo op with another emergent, quote-unquote, Christian leader. And he's not a Christian. Don't be deceived. He may have started out believing, but talk about getting sidetracked and backslidden. Don't let there be any doubt about it. And so we groan when we see these sort of things. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait with it with perseverance. That's what we prayed for before we came out here. Lord, we know it's late. Just give us the endurance to finish this race and help us finish it well. In a young Christian, we had a song that went like this. Lord, give me gas in my Ford. Keep me working for the Lord. (laughs) Those are the the deep lyrics that we had in the early days. Give me gas in my Ford. Keep me working for the Lord, you know. And now we see it while we're we're groaning and waiting. We've got to go back so we can finish up our psalms on time. Back to Psalm 149. Psalm 149 tells us, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and is praised in the congregation of the saints. And let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will Beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all the saints. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149, verse 9, talks about uh, this, uh, verse 9, this uh, sing, uh, verse 1, I should say, sing a new song. And I I think this is a sort of a spontaneous thing that happens uh, when a person meets the Lord. We had a whole new style of, of worship come when my generation, the Jesus movement, got saved. And, um, I mean, new record labels, Maranatha Music was established, and people were pumping out songs. Our friends in Love Song were doing three concerts a day, all for free, and just out there because they loved the Lord and they just wanted to get it out. Well, they were singing a new song. It was um, from their hearts, and it was to the Lord. We had the praise albums. And Sunday, that's what we're going to focus in on, is... is um, Praise and the importance of praise. And then it says, even even says here, um, um, verse 3, let them 
praise his name with the dance. And so now the question arises, what dance? Can Christians dance? That's what it says in verse 3. And um, Tracy was up in the office today, and I said, Tracy, what do you think about that? And I said, do you think Christians can dance? And she says, yes. And I said, I don't think that's the definitive answer. And she says, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what you think it's yes. She says, yes. And I said, no, that's not the definitive answer. And she says, okay, what's the definitive answer? And I says, the definitive answer to the question, can Christians dance, is some can and some can't. <laughs> Ooh, you got me. Yeah, I did. I got her good. Psalm 150, let's wrap it up. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty ferment. You can almost see it building here. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the trimble and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If you have a problem like the Church of Christ, with musical instruments being in church, especially drums and cymbals. Jerry, I'm looking at you. You know, you have a problem then automatically with the Bible that instructs us to do exactly that. And sometimes it's just playing skillfully. One of my favorite things is the instrumentals of praise strings. I remember being in a, in an elevator in Singapore and uh, uh, with Gospel for Asia, and all of a sudden I hear praise strings for elevator music in an elevator in Singapore. And I go, well, what's with this? And I asked the guy who was waiting on us, he says, no, it's owned by a Christian, and they play Christian music just all the time. And here was praise strings in some elevator in, in Singapore. And it made my day that it, it, was, it was being played. Um, the Church of Christ uh, is going through a transition. We Googled this today, and I'll close with this. In Brentwood, Tennessee, uh, a Church of Christ um, is rethinking and allowing musical instruments. Well, there's several that say hymns only. That's all there is. And if, you're, if you bring that, you're bringing the devil's music uh, in, into the church. No. You know, Larry Norman had it right the first time when he wrote a song, Why Does the Devil Have All the Good Music? You know, our music, if played skillfully, um, can glorify the Lord. It's who you're playing it to. It's who you're singing to. And um, it's, a, it's a matter of the heart. But here, I mean, you're going to have a, if you have a problem with, um, with uh, instruments in a church, then you've got a problem with Psalm 150, and you're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> So, what can I say except praise the Lord? As we make our way through God's word, we are halfway through. We just finished 150 psalms. We'll be talking about worship on Sunday. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And we thank you that we're commanded along with creation. We thank you, Lord, that we have an an object of our praise And you're worthy, Lord, because of your characteristics, your attributes, that you are compassionate, 
that you are slow to anger, that you have tender mercies. And Lord, you've taught us, if you're that way, then help us be compassionate. Help us show mercy. And Lord, create a new song in our heart. And we thank you so much for the people that you've raised up here on our worship team and and the different groups that are here. We take them not for granted. We pray for them. Put a new song in their heart. And Lord, for perseverance as we see the lateness of the hour, that we can finish well. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God people said.